and welcome to Movie Go Round, a film discussion podcast that rotates between different themes every week on a five-week schedule. This week's theme is New to Two. Hello, everybody. My name is Brett Stewart. Joining me, as always, my wonderful co-host on this fine evening, David Luzader. How are you? I'm doing good, Brett. Uh, no, I am. I am doing well. Uh, this episode is coming out in a week that is insane for me, stand-up comedy-wise. So I will try not to do uh, too many riffs out of nowhere on this episode. <laughs> it's hard though when you do have someone who is very easily riffable. I do feel like the caricature voice of Bobby D is most certainly like. A caricature because of so many decades of comedians making fun of him um yeah but nicole davis with us as well how are you nicole yes. how am i how it's all just words man <laughs> it just what does that even mean how now, am I? nicole how am I? I want to stop you from getting too deep because women can't be poets <laughs> oh, no. that's right oh yeah that's right. The bombshell. Well, the movie we watched is I'm Not There, but for those unfamiliar, every week is a different theme. This week's was new to two. That means that one of the hosts in a rotating fashion gets to pick a film that neither of the other two have seen. This was my turnaround, so I, I picked the 2007 film I'm Not There. Uh, before we tell you about that, though, I do want to dig into what next week's movie is going to be, so those of you that like to follow along can do so. We are going to be watching... Hey, the ghost. It is a 2015 Nick Cage vehicle. We can't promise it'll be good. In fact, it almost most assuredly will not be good, but we can promise that you'll have a lot of fun watching it, hopefully, and have a lot of fun listening to us. And it should be like in October. It will be in October. So happy Halloween. Um, what what percent comes. on Rotten Tomatoes is it again? It is 10%. So it's not quite in the single digit club, but it's it's close. Awesome. Yeah, it's not. No, no gleaming fun, reviews. Actually. For Nick Cage trying to steal a kid back from the underworld. Uh, but we watched I'm Not There from 2007. The eccentric, enigmatic Bob Dylan is given an unusual biopic treatment in this 27 film, 2007, uh, directed and written by Todd Haynes, starring six different actors as Bob Dylan. Uh, so quickly, the preface, the reason I picked this movie is I knew it, I knew it would be really weird to watch. It's a very bizarre film. And outside of my love for Bob Dylan, and those that know me know I love Bob Dylan, um, I didn't really like this movie the first time I saw it, and it grew on me over time, because not only is it filled with a lot of Easter eggs for Bob Dylan fans, and I'd be curious to hear more about those later in the show, because you guys are not you know, big Bob Dylan fans, but also, I think it is the, it is the, um, the absolute difference in biopic, whereas most are like cradle to grave or something to that effect instead they were like well this person is kind of confusing so let's just make an equally confusing movie with like 10 different versions of them or six rather and i think that it fails at times and it is slow at times but there are also some really brilliant times and that's why i wanted to talk about it because it's weird it is a very different kind of biopic i would not call this a biopic uh you know, that's just, really fair. 
<laughs> personally. And I know like coming into this, Nicole and I uh, in our Slack, we're kind of railing on this movie a little hard. <laughs> Mostly, Brett, you have to know it's because we were enjoying driving you crazy. I know. Yes. You're driving me uh, nuts. I, I was like, is this whole discussion just going to be me getting on my Bob Dylan platform? No, I, I mean, I, no, I, I feel you guys. Don't. But here's the thing. My issue with this movie at all is not Bob Dylan. And I would probably venture the same to say for Nicole, despite her problems with the music of Bob Dylan. <laughs> Uh, we'll get into stuff in the discussion, but I, I, I want to say that I think this idea that they had was very interesting. Uh, you know, of everybody, people are kind of different people at different points in their life. And so having actors play them at different points is an interesting idea. I think here comes off a little bit masturbatory, <laughs> just saying, I think that's an excellent way of putting it. No, that's yeah, totally fair. I, totally fair. I I think the the one I was trying to think like who would this have worked for really well? This idea of having different actors playing at different points. For me, it was David Bowie. Bowie. Yep. yep. Yeah, that would have worked really well. Could you have Bowie that, playing different versions of Bowie in Bowie's life? Because Bowie was a phenomenal actor. Well, that, that's what I'm. That's what I'm saying. Like Bowie had like the Ziggy Stardust times and like the sexy hunchback times and like when you have hunchback. him. <laughs> he had a hun- He had. He tried out a character that was a hunchback. It's yeah. weird. Thin white uh, dude so, in the mid seventies. Yeah, exactly. You have him in these different eras. I think that would have been a really effective way of yeah. telling it. With Bob Dylan, it's an interesting idea, but this director obviously loves Bob Dylan a <laughs> lot. And a I lot, a lot. Read a quote from the director, Todd Haynes, where he says, the minute you try to grab a hold of Dylan, he's no longer who he is or where he was. He's like a flame. If you oh, try to boy. hold him in your hand, you'll surely get burned. Dylan's life of change and constant disappearances and constant transformations makes you yearn to hold him and nail and to nail him down. That's why his fan base is so obsessive. Uh, so desirous of finding the truth and the absolutes and the answers to him. Things that Dylan will never provide and will only frustrate. Dylan is difficult and mysterious and evasive and frustrating, and it only makes you identify with him all the more as he skirts identity. And I think perhaps to David's point here, Bowie was very like visually different through every era of his life. And, yeah. and Dylan was too, to a lesser degree, but I think they delve more into like, his the various psyches he had um, because he kind of became a different personality in person from decade to decade. Um, now, and they do it in a weird yeah. way. What I, what I love is the, um, the, the trivia on IMDb that at the time of this movie being made and released director, Todd Haynes never met Bob Dylan. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair. I don't, I like, so one of my favorite, um, cameos in this movie is jim james of my morning jacket he plays this like white-faced minstrel in the middle of halloween square singing a song called going to acapulco and jim Which is, james I, that's my favorite song in the movie oh, absolutely amazing. absolutely it's, that it's song best, is fantastic best performance in the movie and yeah. uh jim james is terrific i love him and everything he does and uh he toured with bob dylan for a whole year uh, along with jeff tweedy of wilco and they never met him. <laughs> uh, oh, they were and, uh, on stage every night opening for him, and they never met the guy. It's Jim James and Calexico is playing the music. Calexico plays, plays the music on a couple of the tracks. Yeah, for others. Yeah. That's the, I mean, is it me, or does that seem 
rude for the older, more established performer not to meet the people oh, opening. Oh, Dylan's an asshole. Hey. I'm just going to throw okay. that out okay. here. For so, as much as but, I love Bob Dylan, he's the kind of person yeah. that, like, I love his music. I respect him as an artist. I would never want to go out to dinner with him. He, I know it, he's a hero who would disappoint me. He's he's a complete that's, jerk. And that's, like, a thing where in this movie... Uh, I'm watching like parts of it and I'm like, am I supposed to like this guy? Right. <laughs> like, the whole Kate Blanchett part, I'm like, this person sucks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's totally fair. And yeah, yeah like the, even like the Heath Ledger, which I am going to talk a lot about Heath Ledger in this episode <laughs> because uh, we lost Heath Ledger way too soon. Uh, even like as much as I love looking at him, I'm like, I want to punch you in the face. Yeah. <laughs> Or a yeah. Oh no! You wanted to punch each Heath Ledger in the face. I wanted to punch Ben Wishaw in the face. <laughs> the poet. So here's, all right. Yes, Ben Wishaw. That was a that was a weird thing. So they had Chris <laughs> Christopherson narrate the beginning of this film. Yes, they did. Good and, choice. Which was interesting, but then I felt like, why not have him play? The poet, then. <laughs> I'm just imagining Chris Christopherson in the Dylan hair. Like, yeah, it's beautiful. Or have Ben Wishaw, um, though. Please let us call him Paddington when we remember. Uh, have <laughs> have Paddington uh, narrate the beginning of the film and be that connective tissue, rather than like this great narration from Chris Christopherson at the beginning that just disappears I know. for the rest. Have of him the narrate film. the movie as Paddington. I've. N- <laughs> uh, I, I am in. <laughs> I will that watch might make it even better for yeah. me. And, and yeah, oh, that'd be like, beautiful. For me with this movie, there are some missed opportunities. Um, the biggest missed opportunity for me in this movie is that when they made this movie, they brought in a ton of musicians, just to name a few. Sonic Youth, Richie Havens, uh, Yola Tango, Jeff Tweedy, Willie Nelson, uh, Glenn Hansard, uh, Mason Jennings, Anthony and the Johnsons, um, Rambling Jack Elliott, The Black Keys, uh, like every generation of musician, Jack Johnson um, came in and recorded songs for them. And it spans like a 35 song soundtrack. That's not in the movie. The The whole entire movie, it has the Jim James song. It has um, the songs done by a guy named jo- Joe John Doe, who does the songs that Kate uh, Blanchett's character... Bell. And yeah, Kate Blanchett's character and um, Christian Bale's character sing. Yeah. No, John Doe it. and and Mason Jennings provided the singing voice for Christian Bale and oh, Stephen okay. Stephen Malkmus of Pavement gotcha. Fame. Right. For right. Kate so they essentially used the most obscure artists, um, and they had. And here's the thing: if you go and listen to the soundtrack. Um, you have like Cat Power doing Stuck Inside a Mobile with the Memphis Blues again, and you have like Willie Nelson doing Senor and Jeff Tweedy doing Simple Twist of Fate. And it's like, if this movie is going to be a giant love letter to Bob Dylan for Bob Dylan fans, why didn't you let all the Bob Dylan fans that recorded songs for you be in the movie? Like, this is a huge issue I have with it because I almost love the soundtrack even more than the movie. Like, I do like this movie a lot. But I don't need to hear the Bob Dylan songs in the movie sung by Bob Dylan. I just don't. I've heard those enough. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, I mean, that's like a pretty interesting point. I saw uh, a movie recently, Crazy Rich Asians, which all of the songs in there are uh, are these canto pop songs. So it's these pop songs sung in Cantonese. And some of them are like English songs that they did covers for in Cantonese. And it was like a really great thematic 
way of, you know, like you recognize these songs that you've heard before, but they're not in the language, you know, and they're still these really great versions. And I like, I I'm agreeing with you there that I think it would have added something thematically to have these covers by people who, you know, like love Bob Dylan and, and, and his music, having that be the soundtrack for your film. Right. It's uh, go ahead, Nicole. No, I was I was just going to say I wasn't sure what you meant by having them in the movie, having them in the the soundtrack, soundtrack that actually yeah. is in the film. Yeah, that that would have been better. And I mean, I agree with you. And I mainly because you know, and it's in in our Slack chat, I was really kind of pounding <laughs> on this movie and Bob Dylan's voice, and I am not a fan. Not because I don't think he's a good songwriter. I think he's a brilliant songwriter. I think his songs are very incisive and insightful and they're lyrically beautiful at times. And he's a terrible singer, in my opinion. <laughs> I, I find him unpleasant to listen yeah. to vocally. Mm-hmm. I would much I could listen to Dylan covers all the live long day and you almost could have if they had made this movie the right way in that regard like when you were watching the movie that's as much as i'm gonna dump on him oh yeah and you know what you personally you were watching the movie and you said in our slack like you're like oh crap it's stuck in a mobile memphis blues again it's everything i hate about bob dylan's voice and i know exactly what you're talking about you're talking about like the like this out of key slurring um yes and and, (laughs) and at first i was like why is she saying that cat power sings that and then I'm like, wait, yeah. that's only on, on the, the soundtrack. Yes. Yeah. Not on um, the actual. So go listen to Cat Power do it. You'd like it a lot better. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like, for example, on the soundtrack, um, I'm not a huge Jack Johnson fan, but I do think he's very talented. Um, he does a song called Mama, You've Been On My Mind, uh, which was never released on a record. Um, it was a song Bob Dylan wrote for Joan Baez and later he got bootlegged a bunch. And he takes Mama, I'm on your, Mama You've Been On My Mind and he mixes it with a poem that Bob Dylan wrote called Last Thoughts on Woody Guthrie, which was Bob's homage to Woody after Woody died. So, like, you have to imagine Jack Johnson's a pretty big Dylan nerd. He'd be like, I'm going to play the song that he never released and then combine it with a poem he wrote. Like, and that should have had an outlet besides being buried on the soundtrack that didn't get used. So that's my biggest gripe with this movie is that you're wasting sonic youth sonic youth does the title track in this movie and you never hear it <laughs> like what's going yeah, on yeah that's an oversight it was an oversight yeah it's, it's one but, of those things i hate the soundtracks that some you know companies will release where it's music from and inspired by the movie yeah, worst such and such it's like no <sighs> i want to hear what i heard in the movie theater thank you very much I thought Black Panther did that okay. Not every single one of those songs was in Black Panther. And they captured the mentality of Black Panther reasonably well. Um, But I digress. Uh, One thing I do want to do really quickly, I'll go through as quickly, is before we go too far into this discussion, for those who have not watched the movie and may not, I do want to very briefly... (laughs) I want to very briefly explain what each of these characters is supposed to be. And this is my opinion. I could be wrong, um, but I think I'm on the mark. So Kate Blanchett plays Jude Quinn. Um, uh, Jude Quinn is probably the most recognizable version of Bob Dylan in pop culture. It's like strung out, exhausted, endlessly touring. People are booing at him. They're calling him Judas for going electric. 
literally crashes. Uh, Heath Ledger plays a character named Robbie, and this is like Dylan's battle with stardom, his personal relationships, and above all, his really rocky relationship with his first wife, Sarah. Uh, Christian Bale plays Pastor John, uh, who is like the folk hero who later doesn't want to be a folk hero and then becomes a born-again Christian. Um, I poked fun in our docket saying that this is John Lennon's least favorite version of Bob Dylan because John was so pissed off that the man who once sang, um, you know, don't follow leaders, watch your parking meters, ended up singing, you got to serve somebody. Um, He found that very frustrating. Uh, Richard Gere plays Billy the Kid, uh, which is the reclusive version of Bob Dylan, the one who lived in the countryside in New York, ignored Vietnam. The world is like literally falling apart around him and he's just ignoring it. Uh, Ben Wishaw plays the poet. Uh, Pretty much every single line that Ben says in this movie is a straight quote from Bob Dylan being really drugged out and pretentious in the 60s. Um, And probably the only version that crosses over with another version because it's very much like Cate Blanchett's. Um, Woody I actually did not write down this kid's name. Does someone have it? Marcus Carl Franklin. Okay, so he is the youngest. Uh, He is supposed to play the young and innocent Bob Dylan. Uh, He's on the run. He's tied to the past. He's not living in his own time. Uh, Alice Fabian, played by Julianne Moore, is Joan Baez. Um, David Cross, I just put poorly cast. We'll get into that. He's very poorly cast in this movie. And then finally, Bruce Greenwood shows up twice playing what is essentially Mr. Jones, who is an authoritative figure that constantly um, poo-poos on Bob Dylan and really thinks that Bob Dylan has like a not only an aura of pretentiousness, but also um, that he's kind of just putting the wool over people and he's not actually believing what he sings in and is just kind of a cynical jerk, which he kind of is. No. Um, <laughs> And Bruce Greenwood plays that character. So that's our rundown. So now we're talking about the character I liked best in the movie. (laughs) And let's not forget you in this movie see Bruce Greenwood's ass. Like, let's just make sure that everyone (laughs) we do briefly. Yes, yes, you do. Um, And I actually love his character in this movie because the the famous interactions are between um, Bob Dylan and a time intern named Jeffrey Owen Jones, and Jones back most famously asked Bob Dylan if he believed in what he sang in. And then he got really pissed off and said, would you ask the Beatles that and walked out and they gave Kate Blanchett that line um, and that whole interaction, which yeah. I thought was really cool. And what, what, and the thing is, okay. Kate Blanchett in this moment, June Quinn is like our kind of hero of the story, but everything that Bruce Greenwood is doing, I'm like, yeah, I'm on your side. Yeah. No. Uh, You're making a lot of sense. He's asking perfectly reasonable questions. Yeah, absolutely. And frustrated that Dylan is never giving him a straight answer. Never. Not <laughs> once. Oh. Um, and that's very true to form. And that actually, I think, could lead us very well into a discussion of the performance here. Her uh, performance as Bob Dylan, as June Quinn, um, or Jude Quinn, I'm sorry. I don't think it's June. Yeah. Jude Quinn. Jude. Um, yeah, because Judas was not right, and Quinn because of the Mighty Quinn, um, a Bob Dylan song. Lots of Easter eggs in this movie. Um, she was the only one nominated for an Oscar, um, which is like pretty impressive um, for Best Supporting Actress playing a man. And it's uh, a brilliant embodiment. She nails of him. She, yeah, if she you was, ever watched like those great. 1960s press conferences? His like his his uncomfortable body language and just she nails mm-hmm. it. 
Oh, even his like his face in repose when he thinks nobody's looking is like some candidates I've seen of Dylan. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird. So in, in most so in most uh for most of the awards this thing was nominated for, it's pretty much universally Kate Blanchett nominated. Yeah. In a couple of like the Independent Spirit Awards, you did have Best Director, Best Film. Uh, best supporting actor and some, you know, smaller films. The Venice Film Festival it got a couple of uh, special jury prize stuff. But typically, Chicago Film Critics, Golden Globe Awards, the Oscars, British Film Awards, Broadcast Film Critics, it's all Kate Blanchett either nominated or winning for best supporting actress. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think part of it is, like I said, she plays the most recognizable version of Bob Dylan. Um, when people think of Bob Dylan, they think of crazy hair, black Ray-Bans strung out 1964, right? Um, and I think that that's probably why she she has the most to work with, most certainly, right? Like, um, But she's just so brilliant as the character. And, and you're so right, Nicole. She's got like, even her facial structure, like her bone structure, like is kind of his like well i mean it's it's partly the way that she's shot you know the way that she's lit and shot are with these stark light and shadows that throw the cheekbones into sharp relief and make her look hollow and i think it's just it's kind of remarkable how um it i only thought for about half a second about the fact that this is a female playing a male yeah. character and then it was gone. You know, I wondered for half a second, I'm like, oh, I wonder if she had to like bind herself down to be so flat chested. And that was it. And then I'm just like, wow, this actor is really doing an amazing job at, you know, being this version of Dylan and being, you know, dissolute and unsure of himself and this and that and became sort of a genderless performance for me at oh. least as far as you know the the actor became genderless to me no but, abs- absolutely Kate Blanchett totally embodied that role in a way where it is entirely about the performance yeah. and as as frustrating as I found the character <laughs> yeah that that is a testament to uh, to Kate Blanchett because I had a very strong feeling about this, like about this character. There are some of the other performances where, like, really, take it or leave it. I don't really care either way about it. But the fact that I had such a strong reaction to the character that Kate Blanchett is portraying says that Kate Blanchett is portraying a very strong character. Yeah, yeah, she's an incredible actress, and I also, I think, what I love most about her performance was that when she was preparing for this role and all of them did it to various degrees. Um, if you're into this movie buy the DVD, it's got a second CD with all sorts of stuff on it. And this is on there where they're interviewing them and they all kind of did their own deep dives in, into Bob Dylan. And in hers, you know, she found these interactions that Dylan would have with people in hotels. Um, and there's a scene in this movie where, you know, she's in a, he, she, Bob Dylan, Jude Quinn, this is going to get weird, um, is in a hotel room <laughs> and, um, like all sorts of stuff's happening, right? Like, like kind of bantering back and forth with like the groupies slash like friends, the managers trying to, you know, run 
Jude, uh, Jude's life. And then all of a sudden this like bellboy comes in and like pulls a knife on them because that's how aggressively they feel about what they've done, about what Jude Quinn has done to music and ruined it. And she says, get groovy or leave, man. And she says it in <laughs> such a like scrawny, pathetic way because she's got this tiny little body and she kind of like gets up on her tiptoes and waves her hands like, get groovy or leave, man. And you watch the actual video of this actually happening and it does. And that is exactly how Bob looks and sounds um, is saying, get groovy or leave man to a guy who just threw a bottle out into the street. And there's a- <laughs> there were some parts of that, um, of the, the Kate Blanchett section that got weirdly like minstrel show a little bit. Uh, like the part when it's like, where, where's Jude? And then like, there's this weird sound effect. And oh, I, right. Her, she's tumbling down the, I, the, what I assume is supposed to be the Beatles. Yes. I don't know. It is. It, so. It's just like, it's this totally like, kind of this break from the rest of the way that segment is shot. It was, I don't know. It was, it was jarring. Yeah, I mean, the rest of the movie has sort of these this dreamlike quality to it. These little vignettes are sort of these dreams stitched together. And the, the bit with the Beatles arriving, it's very much like this incursion of a hard day's night arriving right. in the middle of Dylan's movie. You know, it right down to, you know, after this little you know, sound effect as they all arrive and it's cutesy and they're rolling around on the grass together, which is totally out of character from everything else in the movie. Um, and, you know, so Jude is all giggly as they're leaving and the, the Beatles all wave and walk away out of this park. And then you see this, like, you see them suddenly running across the back of the frame in this pack of fans chasing them just like in a hard day's night and it's mm-hmm. it's a very weird little interlude in the middle of this movie yeah yeah so for the historical context, and i mean is that something that happened yeah so that's that's what i was going to get into is that um bob dylan is the reason you have high beatles <laughs> it's the reason you have sergeant peppers it's the reason you have magical mystery tour basically everything after 1965 because the beatles had never done drugs until they showed up in bob dylan's hotel room in 1964 and he hooked them up with some pot um great. bob dylan no uh yeah there's a there's a great like jimmy kimmel live interview with ringo where ringo like fondly reminisces about getting high with bob dylan and then like totally like zones out in that moment and like gets like past high like the high is returning him 50 years later um, no see that was acid no, flashbacks no, no no that was the the high that he first had was so intense that <laughs> mind traveled into Comes the future to that exactly. moment and it was just him for a moment being embodied by past him there you go yeah but but it's a really jarring scene and i don't i still don't know if i like it but that's what they're trying to get across is like he got them high um <laughs> but uh like the the quote I heard once, and I don't know who to attribute it to, is rock and roll was born, and we're talking about like 60s rock and roll, so not Elvis or Buddy Holly. Uh, rock and roll was born when Bob Dylan wanted to be John Lennon and John Lennon wanted to be Bob Dylan. 
because at the exact same time, the Beatles were becoming much more rock and roll and much louder and much more experimental. And Bob Dylan was trying to be much more insightful with his lyrics. And he was compelled by the way John Lennon wrote songs. So like when the personas of those two collided, that's when you really had Rubber Soul and Blonde on Blonde, those two giant records of their of the mid 60s explode and become like, this is 60s rock now you know we have electric guitars we're no longer judas um so and i think like maybe part of the problem with this movie and in fact i know it's a problem is uh what do you get is is there still enough to get out of it if you're not catching those easter eggs like you guys answer you got you guys would know i don't think so yeah i I, might be right i use the term at the top of the show that i'll repeat here which is masturbatory, which is <laughs> this movie was made by a guy who loves Bob Dylan so much mm-hmm. that he wanted to make a movie about how interesting Bob Dylan is. And that's fine. Great for him. Mm-hmm. But I think it is, it is by Bob Dylan fans for Bob Dylan fans at the end of the day. Right. Not to say right. there are not, there are not some, you know, we talked about there are some great performances in this movie. There are some interesting stuff in this movie that I think would have made a better film if it focused primarily on certain storylines. But it is so much about this guy's love for Bob Dylan and great yeah. for him for getting the backing to do it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, for I think for an impressive cast in, to do this. It you know? has a really impressive cast. Yeah. It's, and I mean, I'm I I get that Bob Dylan is clearly not an a very accessible person, mm-hmm. and that Todd Haynes was seems determined to not make a traditional biopic or even go with a traditional narrative, but it makes it. He is not making it any easier for somebody who's not already a fan to feel like there is a way to empathize with Bob Dylan or understand what he's about or even understand what his music is about because it's just not it's it's assumed you already know. And if you don't already know, that's too bad. Keep up. Yeah, there are some times where it got into the kind of songs that Bob Dylan was writing and the importance of like, there is a really bizarre part in the Kate Blanchett stuff where you have the, um, the members of like the, the Black Panther group <laughs> going yeah, over. Getting their own that interpretation was... of Ballad of a Thin Man. And that is that is interesting. Mm-hmm. That part I was in there for. <laughs> Did that happen? I would love to know. Or is that like some white privileged guy imagining a funny scenario where the Black Panthers are listening to Dylan and getting really into it? And isn't that funny that they like this white folk guy's music? <laughs> That's a great question. I have no yeah, idea. So, one thing I will say on that is that like Dylan was so incredibly incredibly like over analyzed um throughout the entirety of the 60s but ballad of a thin man in particular actually did become a black panther um like protest song um that's why they used it right there um they totally clung on to that song and the funny thing is that the song is so remarkably vague and odd it could really just be about anybody you don't like 
Um, <laughs> and that's kind of the point, I think, is that they're showing you like anyone could cling into this. Like one of my favorite po- mo- moments in the movie is right after the weird Beatles thing. This guy gets up in Dylan's face or Jude, Jude Quinn's face and like his big nose is like is like pushing into the cameras. You can see his nostrils flaring up and he's got this really ridiculous bowl cut. And he's like, what did you mean when you wrote that? And he just starts getting into like his little oh, yes. analysis of what this is. And it, all of it is clearly his own speculation and none of it was intended in the song. Um, and Jude Quinn could not be more disinterested in what he has to say. But... That's kind of how it is with Bob Dylan's music. Because, like, just for context, when we're talking about his accessibility, he didn't even comment on this movie until 2012. Um, <sighs> at which point he just said, yeah, I thought it was all right. Do you think that the director was worried that people would understand it or not? I don't think he cared one bit. I think he wanted to make a good movie. I thought it looked good, and those actors were incredible. Um, so at least he saw it, right? Like, <laughs> at least he's seen yeah. a movie. Yeah. Like, in the in the when he wanted to use i can't remember where i read it um it may have been in the imdb trivia which is always a little dubious but he had wanted to use something i think maybe some of like dylan's music and was like trying to get permission to do so uh yeah all right todd hayes to get approval from bob dylan to use his music since unlike in velvet goldline david bowie did not get permission for his music he felt the film would not work without it at the encouragement of Dylan's manager, Haynes wrote a one-page summary of the concept and the characters, which Dylan approved. It took another six years to get the film made after that. So, like, that, they had, like, no... Con- like, the most, I feel like, the contact was Todd Haynes being like, I'm, I'm making this movie about know, right? you. <laughs> and, like, and, like, and keep in mind, half the movie is being made around Batman the Joker schedule because this was literally being shot at the same time. <laughs> Yeah. All right. Just so everyone knows, Brett insists on never referring to Christian Bale by his name, but <laughs> yeah, he never calling him Batman. He's to be fair, he'll never be anything but. Just like it's Paddington for David. Over there say, with Batman. You go watch. You go watch the Machinist, and oh, then God. call him oh, Batman. Can we not watch the <laughs> Machinist ever again? I watched I'm it once, recovering. and that's all I need. I'm still well, recovering. Here's what I want. Here's. <laughs> Well, I want to I want to move back though because I think you know Nicole I think does hit the nail on the head in terms of like Haynes just expects you to pick up references and if you lose anything at any point you're too bad. Uh, I pause this movie a lot while watching it with my girlfriend and be like, oh yeah, this is what they're getting at here. Um, and she thoroughly enjoyed it, but I don't know if she would have thoroughly enjoyed it if she hadn't had the resident Dylanophile to sit there and walk through it with her. Um, right. I mean, I knew the one event I knew about his appearance at the Newport Folk Festival, and it was right. the uh, yeah. first public time playing with electric instruments right. instead of acoustic. A hard, a hard thing as well with this movie is that it's really difficult to tell when the storylines take place. Yeah, because they jump all over the place. Yeah. And even within even within the storylines, they jump around through time. The time yeah, but setting it... of um, Robbie's story is always hopping in all different directions. But it seems like, I mean, this is the thing that I think bothered me about, you know, ooh, Dylan's so eclectic and he's been through so many phases in his life and... So we have to have six six different actors play him, and it seems like the period of time covered is like ten, maybe twelve years at the most. Yeah, I'm and possibly as little as like maybe five or seven. Yeah, in fact, the furthest. So the earliest it goes is the young boy 
uh, is like Dylan in the very early 60s when he's first arriving in the Greenwich Village. And the okay, farthest but he's goes, still in his 20s. Right. The farthest it goes, point. though, is Dylan in his 40s, which is when Dylan looks all raggedy and he's preaching. Um, that happened in the early 80s. Oh, right, 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 right. Um, Where he's and, in the born-again Christian phase. Right. But but here's the yeah. thing. Like, there's a lot of other really weird Bob Dylan phases, like, in between those. Um, and they don't really explore those very much. Um but like even all the way down to the song selections they do use because they do end up using Bob Dylan's recordings much to my dismay as much as I love them <laughs> um, because whenever hey hey Claire could you not set the uh, Google Home alarm while I'm podcasting <laughs> it's okay I'm just going to leave that in people your Google Home is very loud when you tell it to set a morning alarm um, <laughs> in any case uh, what was I going to say <laughs> Oh, yeah. So, Something about it, him in his 40s. And yeah. So it, during different points in this movie, they are selecting songs that are immediately relevant to the what's happening on screen and the period in which Bob Dylan wrote that song. Every single time there is emotional relationship trouble, good or bad, with Robbie and his wife, Claire, um, who are supposed to be um, Dylan and his first wife, Sarah, uh, they're always playing songs off Desire and Blood on the Tracks, which are which are the songs about them breaking up and getting back together and breaking back up. Um, so like even that is just snuck in there and like there's lots of little um like like there's lots of things in the script that allude to different Bob Dylan songs, like when, you know, a woman hits the intruder in the hotel room over the head with a glass chandelier or whatever. And he's like, just like a woman, man. Um, one of his most which famous said- songs is just like a woman. <laughs> She is played, uh, by the way, by uh, Kristen Hagar, who, for me, played a really great role on a television show uh, whose name I'm blanking on, which I'm trying to pull up as I'm vamping here and talking about her. I thought she was like uh, like Jennifer Lawrence's twin. Yeah, I can see that. She, uh, <laughs> or she, like sister or cousin. Why was it not? Being human. The sci-fi show Being Human. And I remember Being Human. Yeah. She's pretty she's pretty good in that. Uh but I liked Kristen Hagar and was happy to see. And she had like fairly prominent billing in this movie. Yeah. So, so here's one thing I want to mention. Um, and maybe you guys haven't seen this movie, maybe you haven't. The maybe the better version or at least the more accessible version of this movie, but not as critically acclaimed, but perhaps better, is across the universe. Um, because across the universe, very movie accessible. I also have issues with. I, yeah, <laughs> I mean it, a lot of people have issues with the cross universe, but it's it's more accessible, and maybe part of that is just that people are more hyper exposed to Bob Dylan. Than, I mean, to uh, the Beatles than they are to Bob Dylan. Um, Absolutely, and also there's a much shorter period of time. You're dealing with ten albums, not like fifty. Um, but in Across the Universe, they still do the same things. You know, I'm, one of my favorite moments in Across the Universe is when Jude, uh, another Jude, is picking up his um, paycheck when he's you know he's a sad uh, dock hand and. Britain and all he wants to do is go to the great big US of A and the guy giving him his paycheck says um, you know I hope you're not doing this forever and he's like I'll be here uh, when I'm 64 uh, duh, dun, duh. Uh, and like they have those um, like when you know, Maxwell is using a silver hammer yes yes <laughs> they have them throughout the whole movie and this movie does it too and I think it's less groanable because people don't catch the references as easily oh yeah, yeah and there's a lot of popular songs that were written by dylan that not everyone realizes were written by dylan 
and they don't use a lot of them here. <laughs> like, um, you never hear Mr. Tambourine Man or um, any of the songs the Birds covered or Peter Paul and Mary covered. Like, aside well, from the tidbits, very of briefly Stone, here. You you very briefly hear all along the Watchtower. Yeah, very briefly, and done by Eddie Vedder. Um, yeah. But other than that, like they keep it kind of esoteric, um, which is probably like the key thing we're drilling into with this movie. Now, a couple other discussion topics as we start to dig in more. Uh, what performance of Dylan is strongest for you personally? Are they even performances of Dylan or characters of Dylan's many personas or even broader characters that embody the American persona? This is my question because I think what I'm Americana, getting at is like an Americana persona. Americana persona, yeah. Because like oh, Bob Dylan is so drenched in Americana <laughs> and Americana is built off so much of his music that like the... the or low... he's draped himself in it. Well, yeah, yeah. Um, there's like... I guess I guess what I'm saying is like the outlaw that is like hiding out and and uh, is uh, you know distant from society, but is also really likable. Like there's so much Americana drenched in each of these characters that there are times when I just entirely disassociate them from him. Like I think Richard Gere's character is probably the best example of that. Yeah, no, he gets none of my sympathy because he abandons his dog. Yeah. <sighs> Which is Henry after Henrietta, (laughs) which is a song off of the record that came out during the same year that also had the song um, Going to Acapulco, which is the song Jim James scenes. Again, all the songs are picked selectively for... This is a snaking its own tail. This movie is Ouroboros. (laughs) (laughs) No, I was cool with the female dog named Henry because my mom and aunt and uncle had a cat when they were kids named ralph and they didn't realize ralph was a girl until it had kittens on (laughs) that was fine that's a fine long tradition of accidentally naming your pet after someone of the wrong gender um or the right gender depending you know whatever your perspective on life is that's whatever (laughs) email us but (laughs) (laughs) but anyway where was i getting oh the americana thing i mean i it's clearest with the Richard Gere, you know, uh, Billy the Kid persona and the Marcus Carl Franklin, Woody Guthrie persona, that there's these two aspects of um, sort of American folk life, the way you kind of picture it in, say, I don't know. It's kind of the way I would picture life in Appalachia in the 20s or the yeah, Except like, romanticized, right? Because the boxcar's oh, right. not all that Absolutely. bad. <laughs> Hopping on yeah, the tree. Nobody, nobody is actually starving to death. Nobody has lost any toes to frostbite because they can't afford shoes. Well, and it's this idea that all, you know, the, the hobos of the track are all generous and they're, they're all a, a group banded Kindly. against, yeah. you know, all odds. <laughs> Right. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I don't know how much of that I buy into. I certainly buy into Woody Guthrie as an influence, but I don't know how much I buy into the sort of Billy the Kid, Old West slash Appalachian sort of, you know, love for the rolling hills and the isolation and natural beauty of America with only this sort of tangential connection to people 
I don't, I don't know how much I buy of that being part of Bob Dylan's music and influence. Hmm. It is if you listen to his music in the 70s, um, when he just moved into the countryside, stayed away from everybody, and wrote songs about that kind of stuff. Um, hmm. But the the public, you know, not the public, the, the pop culture version of Bob Dylan, most certainly not, you know. Um, Bob Dylan missed Woodstock. Bob Dylan missed the Vietnam War. You know, he was just like writing, um, he was just reading Jack Kerouac and writing songs about his horse. <laughs> like, I'm not even kidding. There's a song called All the Tired Horses. Um, and If Dogs Run Free, <laughs> about dogs running in fields. It was a very weird period. Um, hey, there's a dog running in a field in this movie. Which is totally a tie into that um (laughs) yeah so uh yeah i mean you're totally right um unless you dig super deep into like mid 1970s bob dylan life um and this movie stretches that in weird ways um bob dylan played billy the kid in a movie which is why they threw that in there particularly Um, Uh, don't worry i'll never make you guys watch that it's not very good uh i i do want to mention this quote from roger ebert because we're talking about the the Richard Gere stuff a bit. Uh, and he's talking about, you know, that this movie is kind of, it's confusing, it's bold, it's all that. He said, uh, you know, we've seen, we've seen a, a daring attempt at biography as collage. We've remained baffled by the Richard Gere cowboy sequence, which doesn't seem to know its purpose. <laughs> that and the Christian Bale part, I would say, are probably the parts that could have been taken out of this movie almost yeah, entirely. So, yeah. They seem yeah, disconnected from everything else, even yeah. as disjointed as, as this movie is. Right. They seem like they're totally other movies. As loosely connected yeah. as all this is, like I can see the connective tissue between the Heath Ledger and Kate Blanchett stuff. I can see mm-hmm. that there. Yeah. But it was just like like again, going back to this guy's love for Bob Dylan was like, all right, well, we got to talk about the time when he was a, a Christian. That was weird. We got to mention that. Right. Well, why, what is <laughs> it? Totally what is, why? That. Because, because, it's, because like, it's, it's, it's part of his life. I don't know. Yeah. And it, because if they're going to do that, they should have had shorter. Ugh, I'm probably arguing for a more confusing movie at this point, but <laughs> they should have had shorter vignettes and gone further through his life. Um, because it's a very, I, I, I honestly do believe they picked out the gospel period and it's the only thing they picked out beyond like 1970 um, just because it happens to be one of the weirdest things he did. Um, it just came out of nowhere that, you know, the Jewish boy from, from Minnesota just happens to become born again Christian, start preaching at his shows. Um, so like, it's weird to me it's in there. I don't know if I like it. I kind of love that Christian Bale's doing it. Um Christian Bale is hilarious to me in this movie because the whole entire time they're trying to get him to play the folk troubadour, he's supposed to be like 20 years old and he looks like he's 40. And um he suffers from that even more than the others do in the movie. And it just looks weird. Part of that's like he's beefed up a little bit because like this is around the time of Batman. <laughs> Yeah, time and age are relative in this film entirely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I don't think he looks forty, but I mean, he's his his face has it takes a toll being as method as Christian oh, Bale is and putting on a ton of muscle weight so and Dick Cheney it off again. And yeah, no. If you like, if you really want to look, I mean, Christian Bale has destroyed his body uh, for the benefit of all of us. And if you look at how he looked in The Machinist, that's the movie he made just before he made Batman. 
Look oh at pictures of, of them, uh, Batman insane. Begins. The, the difference in, in the weight is insane. He actually got too buff, too big for Batman Begins. He had to like cut back and he had to lose some weight. And there have been so many people, uh, like there's, you know, there's infographics of the weight fluctuations of Christian Bale and comments <laughs> from like personal trainers and people being like, this is terrible for your body. This is so yeah, bad. Oh, yeah. It's incredibly 62. awful for your body. He lost 62 pounds for The Machinist um, yeah. before gaining it back up for Batman. Before I think he would say he was living on like water and a can of yeah. tuna a day for that role. Yeah, it's like a cigarette and apple. and oh, Yeah, it was bonkers. Before, before it's going, absolutely like, hot-bellied for American Hustle. Yeah. And now yeah, which just... A, they wanted to use term. a fat suit. He, they wanted to use a fat suit. He was like, "Nope, I'm I'm gonna gain that weight. I'm gonna De Niro that sucker for <laughs> like raging bull, and I'm gonna put that on naturally." Oh, but God, seriously, have I'm you guys seen down. the photos of him as Dick Cheney right now? It's not. It's not no. great. Yeah, I just saw it. Great, I don't. I don't he, like it at all. It's got to be more fun to put the weight on, though. <laughs> he says he's eating a lot of pies. <laughs> That's what he says in the quote. Yeah. Um. So but what is everyone's favorite anyways. performance of a Dylan song in this movie? We briefly touched on it. It's just like Jim James. Jim James is great. It's Jim James, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, that's, that's also a, oh, sorry, go ahead. It's, a, it, it's, a, it's definitely a standout. I mean, I yeah. was paying attention to that because I, I thought it might come up and it didn't, so I asked it. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> the, you know, there's so many Dylan covers in this movie. It's something's going to stand out to you. I mean, it's for me, Jim James is letting out these just beautiful sort of whales in mm -hmm. going to Acapulco. And I am, I've only just barely ever heard of my morning jacket. I've never listened to anything that they've ever done. <laughs> um, but, you know, that's because I'm old. And, <laughs> um, but now I'm definitely going to go seek it out because he's got this beautiful voice and he's letting out these gorgeous whales and it's it's wonderful. Um, it's wonderful. But I mean, the I think my runner-up would have been the song that actually seems to be performed live uh, by Marcus Carl Franklin. He's playing When the Ship Comes In on his acoustic guitar for this audience of you know people he's staying a couple nights with um there's sort of these wealthier uh white couples that he's i can't remember how he comes upon them. oh right he gets he jumps into the river away from the bad hobos or they're not all good hobos he, he comes across some bad ones who try to you know who are desperate clearly for either drink or drugs or money to buy drink or drugs or something they can pawn to get money to buy drink or drugs and gets thrown off the train and then picked up uh, by these relatively wealthy white people. And there's something in there that isn't properly dug into the fact that Marcus Carl Franklin is a young African-American boy picked up by these relatively wealthy white people and performing for them. Right. You know, they're all dressed up as if they're going out for the evening, but they're dressed up for his performance. And yet he's portraying some aspect of Bob Dylan, who is a, you know, a white man, although a white Jewish man. And it's, very confusing and Todd Ains does not spend <laughs> enough time 
digging into even indirectly digging into the fact that he has cast an African-American boy to play this part. I totally agree. Um, this is There's a lot embodied in that, yeah. and he does not pay proper attention to it, I don't think. I agree, um, because one of the controversies of Bob Dylan's life twice, um, in his late life and then early life, is his, um, his penchant for pulling inspiration from African-American traditionals. Um, both going back all the way to the slave days and pulling out quotes and using them in his own songs, um, actually gets into kind of some weird territory there, like in the last 20 years. Um, and then also early in his career in terms of like, you know, taking artists like Lead Belly and the Mississippi Sheiks and, uh, using their influence and creating more contemporary sounds with it and contemporary notions. And, um, there's always been a critical concern of Bob Dylan of, you know, are you homaging? Are you whitewashing? Are you, what are you doing to this culture? Um, and I think anyone who really, you know, appre- appreciates the musical history of it knows that he loves this stuff and is homaging it, but it's always been a thing of contention for him. And, um, like that is where that could have gone and didn't. And you're totally right. Like, not only is he like displaying himself as kind of the minstrel for the family, but that's what this character's life is leading up to that too. He's literally in a sideshow circus, um, with a bunch of people, you know, clapping and right, right in between the, you know, bearded lady and the, and the, you know, all the dwarves. Like there's some really weird stuff going on with that and they never really do it justice. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) Yeah, um, I don't know what to do that, but at least it comes up with the you know one of the best performances of the movie. Yeah, when the show. Great. Do you uh, know? Is he playing his the guitar himself? It is. looks like he he's playing the guitar himself, and and what a great thing when you're that age to be able to jam with Richie Havens. Um, oh Richie my gosh, Havens that was show. great. You know, that, that might too. be one of my favorite performances in the movie too. Is Richie Havens hanging out on the stoop, playing with with that kid? Um. But one thing I do want to mention very quickly is that if you like Jim James recording these songs um, and you like Dylan's songs sung by better singers, um, one thing I would totally recommend is a uh, a super group slash album slash movie that came out um, several years ago called The Lost Basement Tapes. Um, sorry, Lost on the River, The New Basement Tapes. Um, Bob Dylan wrote about 300 songs in 1967. Most of those went into a box, literally, and they found that box and gave them to T-Bone Burnett, who is very briefly shown as like a, a different character in this movie called T-Bone. Um, T-Bone Burnett's a producer and a musician. And T-Bone Burnett took these songs and he recruited Marcus Mumford and Mumford and Sons, uh, Rhiannon Giddens, uh, Alice Costello, uh, Taylor Goldsmith, who is from um, Middle Brother, and then also Jim James. And they all took these lyrics that were written on little napkins and stuff and made full songs out of them and switched off performing the songs and playing backup for each other. And like, it's really cool to hear like Elvis Costello playing backup for Rhiannon Giddens and um, Jim James doing stuff for Marcus Mumford. So I would recommend that. Um, it's very cool. But let's also talk as we begin the wrap down here. We have a couple more very brief discussion topics. Um, some of the personas are drenched in reality, like Heath Ledger. Some of them are more abstract, Richard Gere. Do they successfully blend or should they have been more thematically consistent? I agree that there are times where they are very thematically inconsistent. 
Yeah, I think there's times where it gets a little bit jarring. Some of the cuts between them, you know, they don't they don't introduce the whole Richard Gere thing until over an hour into the movie, and it is by far the most abstract. Yeah, and they after- like keep showing him waking up. Like he's in, he's like the first shot of the movie, <laughs> waking up, and then that's all they give you like four times. Yeah, yeah, it's. I don't know. I he tried to Todd Haynes tried to make six different movies. Yeah, and and make them all into one thing. And you know the the all the the Christian Bale stuff as a documentary, like that's an interesting idea. It, it, but right, like a lot of it comes off like it's just it's jarring because it's six different <laughs> styles that yeah. are all intercut together. And if they're if they if this had been a chronological thing and we're going to explore these different parts of his life with different actors in different styles, that is much more interesting, and I think probably better done than like we're just going to cut them all over. together. <laughs> yeah, and also having Julianne Moore and that horrible haircut trying to play. Um, it oh had to be a wig, right? Yeah, it was in my Slack chat. As soon as you know, Julianne Moore appears part of the document. Uh, you know, the the quote documentary portion with Christian Bale as Dylan, and the, she's got this like muddy brown hair. And in the Slack chat, and, like all caps, I'm like, "Oh my god, what have they done to Julianne's hair?" <laughs> because it's just so wrong. Because no. Julian Moore's hair is like this, this elemental part of nature, and it's just wrong for it to be all muddied up like that. It's horrible. You know, I, I, um, I gotta say that if you're gonna perform <laughs> portray Joan Baez, just bad hair kind of comes with the gig. I know. I love you, Joan. I do. <laughs> My God, she's never figured out what to do with it. <laughs> I know something about folk singers; they don't know what to do with their hair. Her and and. Joni Mitchell and Bob Dylan and yeah. it's just it's all a disaster I mean it's, it's supposed to be that they're above it all that they don't care about such <laughs> material things as that but but like care a little bit yeah crush <laughs> it yeah. my god do something there, I mean there was a part there was a part in my you know early 20s where I was like why would I care about how my hair looks like who really cares that much and then like mid to late 20s i like started paying you know for a good haircut and i'm like this makes a difference i like (laughs) myself a lot more when i have good hair (laughs) i like how i look a lot more when i have a haircut that's done by someone who knows what they're doing yeah and it like fits my head and like yeah suits your face shape yeah yeah and then the close out um what is this movie trying to achieve is it is it successful and is there a climax? We got three heavy duty questions here. Wait, how do we get to this question without mentioning Heath Ledger's dong? Heath Ledger's dong in this movie? I was not. I have to go watch it again. Excuse yeah, me. It's a little hairy. <laughs> no, it's, it's well. Anyway, I'm not going to get into express details about that. It's just like you know, I was watching the movie and I'm I'm watching it and I'm just. Like, Oh, Heath Ledger, which is what I always say now when I see movies yeah. that Heath Ledger appears. Oh, there's Heath Ledger. And I'm like, oh, and there's Heath Ledger's penis. I was not expecting that in this movie. So yeah. like, now I know why it's rated R. Okay. <laughs> um, it's very brief. 
So just, you know, I was watching this. My 14-year-old was, you know, on the couch behind me watching it. It's, it was fine. But <laughs> it's just in passing, he's getting out of the shower or whatever. But it's just like, it was, it was startling. And I just, I had to mention it because I just couldn't. <laughs> but, I mean, Heath Ledger is really good in this movie. But oh, it's, it's like his performance is so, it's so different from all everyone else yeah. in the movie. It's like he's making he's the one making a biopic and nobody oh, absolutely. else. Absolutely. No, absolutely. I agree with you 100% on that. Yeah, I totally agree. Cuz especially because his has the ups and downs and the beginning of the relationship and the end of the relationship. Yeah. yeah. He even has at the end he kind of has that mo- the like the small redemption of the time with his daughters and Right. And I mean, and Charlie Gainsbourg is in this movie and she's wonderful in it as his first wife. And, you know, that's, I'm always happy to see her. She's all her movies have remarkably depressing and or scary elements in them. Don't ever see Antichrist if you don't want (laughs) to see her doing scary, horrible things. Um, But she's so good. She's so good. This English not being her first language. There are so many people where English is not their first language who do beautiful acting in their native language and terrible acting in English. But she is an exception. I think she's remarkable in this movie. And I just wanted to make sure that she got mentioned as doing well. And I'm yeah. sorry. And let's get back to the question, Brett. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, so real quickly for me, I'll just really quick. My three responses. It's trying to achieve making me happy as a Bob Dylan fan. (laughs) Is it successful in that? Yes, albeit in a very obscure way that I totally get other people don't really like. Is there a climax? No, not really. (laughs) Um, Uh, Yeah, no, I I would say, what is this movie? It's trying to portray Bob Dylan as being super complex and incredibly hard to, to pin down in any one particular way. And is it successful in the sense of this movie is really hard to pin down in one particular way? <laughs> sure. But for me, for somebody who has a passing familiarity with Bob Dylan, like I would have a hard time naming five Bob Dylan songs, to be perfectly honest with you. Yeah. <laughs> this movie is not super successful. And I, my, the climax question is just like, I'm like, what is all of this leading to? Is it leading yeah. to anything? Nope. Okay. No, they're just kind of these stories about Bob Dylan, I guess. Yeah. Okay. I mean, there's not, there's not really an ending per se. I mean, the ending is the beginning, right? He wakes up on a boxcar. Um, all no, the in, beginning uh, time is, is a flat circle. Dylan <laughs> going toward the concert stage. It's the Jude Quinn character. Yeah. It leads um, up to heading- the only showing of actual Bob Dylan <laughs> um, right before the credits end. I thought right before the credits that was that was Kate Blanchett doing. No, that's Dylan. that's like, just no, how good she looks as Bob Dylan. That's actually uh, yeah, Bob Dylan. That's actual Dylan. It's a really odd choice right before the credits roll, having the actual actual footage of Dylan, and Dylan's not singing or talking. It's Dylan playing the harmonica, mm-hmm. which I know he can do, but it's not the primary thing or even one of the first three primary things he was known for. I actually, I think, I think he is actually. 
No, well, no, he's he, known for he, playing guitar. He's known for songwriting, and he's he known for popularized the harmonica around the neck. That was, you know, everyone followed with that. I I think one man bands popularized harmonicas around the neck. I don't well, guys. I don't know if I would give Bruce Willis popularized harmonicas. <laughs> That's right. I mean, like, the reason oh. you have like you know John Bruno. Lennon with a harmonica around the neck, and you know, and I love her so, and Neil Young with a harmonica around the neck is because of Bob Dylan. But yeah, I I, I hear totally hear where you're coming from. Yeah, I mean, for this, I'm not. I think what he was trying to achieve is just showing that yeah, Dylan is very difficult to pin down, and there's so many aspects to his personality, and there was this quote from uh, A.O. Scott of the New York Times' review of this movie, which was tremendously laudatory. He clearly loved this movie. Um, And he put out, and I quote, rather than turn out another dutiful linear chronicle of childhood trauma and grown-up substance abuse, Mr. Haynes has produced a dizzying palimpsest of images and styles. (laughs) And I just wonder how long A.O. Scott labored over that phrasing to palimpsest. That had to be Um, the box quote. In fact, I have the box. I should check. No, it wouldn't be the box quote because nobody knows what palimpsest means except no, for like totally 27 right. <laughs> people. Um, I mean, it's apt. I think it's I think it's correct that it's, you know, palimpsest is sort of the, like a mosaic kind of, but written and, and portrayed. And it's. But I don't. I think part of what he's trying to achieve is to say. Look how complex it he is. Isn't that wonderful how complex he is and how he refuses to distill himself into sound bites for people that are easily digestible? And it didn't succeed for me because, A, I'm not a fan going in. Like right. I said, I, I think he's a fantastic songwriter. I'm not a fan of him as a performer. <laughs> um, His voice has been terrible since the motorcycle accident which they portray in like just a pe- one passing shot which is really strange <laughs> um but in any case i don't think it succeeds because he's you know there's all these portrayals of him from the 60s the only one i ones i really sympathize with are him before he even becomes a professional performer and then the uh, the the Jack character, as he's just starting to become a performer on the folk scene, and maybe a little bit of the Heath Ledger as the actor portraying him, or his this little bit of Dylan's acting career, um, and the rest of these portraits of Dylan, you know, the poet and jude quinn and it's just he's you're right he's an asshole yeah i i don't like him i want to punch him i think he's he's trying so hard to be inscrutable that he's just annoying i don't think it's deep (laughs) i don't think it's profound i think it's somebody who refuses to even give the most basic appreciation to the people who enjoy his music yeah that 
I agree. <laughs> it's very unpleasant, and I I don't have any empathy for those aspects of his character. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, me and one of my good friends always play, always play you know, um, like celebrity or musician cul-de-sac, right? Like, if you could pick four or five people that are going to live around you permanently, who would it be? I love him. He would never be. He wouldn't be in the neighborhood because he'd be just a creepy old man that, like, goes out and gets his, um, you know, stuff in the morning and then walks back inside and everyone just fantasizes about what he does with his free time and it just turns into the burbs. Um, he's just not, he's not, which I'm going to go see in theaters tomorrow. Um, the cats in the neighborhood go missing it's just the whole thing <laughs> yeah it's the whole thing so yeah i totally agree with you um and then right as we begin to close out here because we're running pretty long uh, i'm gonna throw this question out here nicole's bait for me is there a point <laughs> to being a brilliant songwriter and performing your own songs if no one can understand what you're singing what i will say in response to this is one out of three people will really love it and the other two are just gonna shoulder shrug <laughs> <laughs> i mean you know Look, uh, when it comes down to it, I didn't hate this movie. I don't think it's a terrible movie. I think it is just for a very, very specific audience. Yeah. And that's fine. Yeah. I mean, I and I don't begrudge you if you like Bob Dylan. There are some very idiosyncratic sounding singers that you either like or you don't like. You like or you don't like the sound of Dylan. You like or you don't like Tom Waits. You yeah, like or you like don't John like Pine. Mason Gray. Yeah. Oh, I up. happen people, to love people, Macy Gray. I don't don't like Tom Waits. Like you'd be surprised. I don't like <laughs> listening to a lot of Tom Waits. Oh, Not God. all of his stuff, but a lot of it. I'm just like, <laughs> it's too mannered <laughs> for me. <laughs> yeah, but that's me. So, and <laughs> yeah, I'm not. That's fi- if you like him, that is fine, and he's an excellent songwriter as well, and that's great. It's just I personally do not find it aesthetically pleasing to listen to. So that's, that's, yeah. that's an idiosyncrasy of me of mine. One thing I will <laughs> say about that though, is that if you look at it historically, Bob kicks the door open for that. Um, you don't have a commercially yeah. successful Tom Waits, John Prine, Lou Reed, Leonard Cohen sure. to an extent. Leonard Cohen's voice is bizarre um, without the commercial success Bob Dylan receives. Um, and yeah, Bob you know, invented music. <laughs> you love it or you hate it. Um, but let's go around the table here. Where can first of all, we we, we got everyone's thoughts on this movie. Next week yeah. is Pay the Ghost. It's Nick Cage. I'm gonna love it. It's gonna be ridiculous. But where can we find everybody? <laughs> Nicole Davis. Where are you online? Uh, you can find me on Twitter under at your word whiz, Y-O-U-R-W-O-R-D-W-H-I-Z. You can find me shepherding our Facebook fa- page, facebook.com slash movie go round podcast. And you can find our Twitter page is uh, it's at movie go round pod. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. And Very somebody good. take it up from there. David, what about you? Uh, boy, kind of my other podcasts are in flux right now. So, uh, if you just want to follow me and find out what I'm doing and my stand up nonsense, uh, follow me on the social medias under the username Dav Luz, that is D A V L U Z, Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram. You can find me there. And a shameless plug for Topanga the Untamable, my yes. dog's Instagram. Go ahead and follow that. I love it. Uh, well, one thing I will say is that, you know, sometimes weeks we might get an episode out late or early or whatever, but we're really not too much in flux because... Uh, oh, like, no. 
<laughs> I mean, well, like, other no, no, no. Well, what I was saying, I, I believe me, I was getting to an anecdote where I was oh. on Facebook today and it was like two years ago today, you did this. And it was the posting of Time Bandits from yeah. uh, Geek Cinema <laughs> Society. And I was like, holy shit, we've been doing this over two years. And that wasn't even the first yeah. episode. Um, yeah. So we'll hopefully we'll be around for quite a long time more, so people can enjoy these. And that I, you know, I'm gonna that's what gonna be my plug. If you enjoy this show, go back and listen to Geek Cinema Society because it was a very different style, but still three of us talking about movies and lots of very interesting movies that fortunately we'll never see here. But you can watch them or listen to them on that feed. You can also find me on Twitter at Rivers Rubin. You can email the show MovieGoRound at TiltingWindmillStudios.com. Thanks, David Nicole for. Uh, Putting, putting up with my Bob Dylan um, love <laughs> this week. I'm glad we had a fun discussion of it nonetheless. But next week, we're delving deep into Nick Cage fights ghosts. Uh, it's called, what's it called? Pay the ghost. He's got to pay it. We'll see yeah. you then. <laughs>